pleasure to come back um, to Oxford always. Um, although I'm a cardiologist, I do um, in many ways align myself more with primary care and community care. So, and, and I've, I've, um, I'll tell you a bit later on, I've got strong links with your evidence-based medicine department here centre. Uh, so I've got some conflicts to tell you. The biggest conflict is you should know that I spend 30% of my time doing clinical work. I'm not a full-time clinician and neither am I a full-time academic. 70% of my time I'm teaching and researching. Um, I've been at advisory boards for these companies but I also have research funding from these other funders. I'm a trustee of the South Asian Health Foundation and my interests are um, quite uh, varied, so ranging from digital health and its evaluation to um, where informatics sits in um, medical education um, to evidence-based medicine. So this evening, um, I'm going to take up half an hour of your time and do three things. First of all, I'm going to tell you about three patients. Then I'm going to tell you about three problems which those patients highlight, and then three frameworks. We're focusing on this. So heart failure is what I'm specialised to um, treat, to diagnose, to look at in my um, working life as a cardiologist. And um, heart failure is an unusual disease in that it's a, it's a syndrome that is really at the end point of quite a lot of processes from high blood pressure to congenital heart disease, from heart attacks to lots of rarer conditions like cobalt, the, um, high levels of cobalt can um, be associated with heart failure for example. Um, so, so there's a real ragbag of stuff that can be linked with heart failure, it can eventually end up being um, seen by me and the idea is we want to pick you up at that and as in any disease you want to be pre-disease or normal if you can to stop the disease from happening and there's an asymptomatic phase where people might not be presenting with breathlessness which is the most common thing that happens but most of my work is when people say I can't walk to the door doc, I can't go up a flight of stairs, they're breathless and there's a variable course which at worst can be, can be fatal and it can lead um, to lots of different treatments, the mainstay of which is drug therapy, but there's you know, a spectrum on which heart, transplant, heart transplantation is there as well. But what I'm here to talk to you about is big data. This term that means everything and nothing. Uh, now, at the moment, I think we're up to seven Vs. When I was studying here, doing my PhD, I first heard about big data, and I think it was only three Vs at that time. So every time you add a V, you can get a paper and, and get your name in the lights. Uh, so now we're up to velocity, volume, veracity, variety, variability, visualization, value. Um, but the, the theme really is that there's more of the data coming at a quicker rate and can we do something more with it? So th this is my topic to talk about whether we can in heart failure. And 
in uh, this this um, kind of jargon bingo of um, big data epidemiology, these are the terms that you'll come across. So precision medicine, the idea that we can make more precise diagnoses and more precise courses of treatment. We can personalise their treatment to the individual, which is a, a slight um, difference to the, to the previous one. Um, and new or old data analytics, there are definitely, I'll, I'll, I hope to convince you, there are some analytics that are new, but a lot of what is being done with big data is um, biostatistics and epidemiology that's, that's not new. But the main theme is, if you look across that spectrum I show, showed you for heart failure, what we're trying to do as researchers or clinicians is trying to predict the risk of being at that point, you know, whether it's developing heart failure, whether it's um, developing the outcome of heart failure. And the fact of the matter is, most of the risk scores that I have at my fingertips as a clinician are not good enough. When people ask me questions, I can't answer them accurately enough with the risk scores that I have at my disposal. And, you know, there's, there's um, ways um, which I'll go into later of how we assess the accuracy of these risk scores. But really, there is a, there is a tried and tested method of how we evaluate risk prediction, how we, how we evaluate risk scores in the same way as we evaluate new treatments. And at the moment, there's many, many of them in heart failure which are not working very well. So my first patient, Imran was um, 43 years old when I met him um, and he uh, had a relatively rare condition known as um, amyloidosis which is uh, um, an infiltrative condition you could say um, it's, and it affects lots of different organs. His, in his case it was affecting his heart very badly. This is a, a previously well man who used to be a, a very vigorous swimmer uh, and he had fluid around his heart which meant that he was he, he couldn't walk from me to death. He was that breathless. But it wasn't really affecting other other organs at this stage. He, he um, was from the south coast um, he was transferred <coughs> to us at Bart's. He had, you don't need to know um, necessarily what all those are, but he had a, a host of scans and various evaluations um, pre-transplant, because what happens is you have these, these tests and investigations to see whether you'd be, you, you'd, you'd um, survive a transplant, how, how we can prioritise you for a transplant, but also this underlying condition, amyloidosis, uh, has a treatment regime which um, affects the immune system. That was, that was started because actually in this period, while he was being investigated, his heart got worse. So I'll come back to it. But ejection fraction is the term we use for how much of your heart output is pumped out with each beat. It should be 55, 60%. This gen gentleman's was 5%. Um, so within six, seven days of seeing me, he got um, listed for urgent transplant and actually within three four days of being listed he had a transplant so he was pretty damn lucky because in the UK you'll see in this um, 
Premier League of Europe of heart transplantation, we're not doing that well in terms of the rate of transplant per, um, per million population. Um, and that's, that's been like that for, for several years. And moreover, if you look at different organs, so this is the, the rate of transplantation of different organs um, in, in, in people who've been um, certified as brainstem dead. The, pr the proportion of organs that are actually available and eligible to be used that actually get used. So at the top there, there's kidneys and livers, which is 80 plus percent, but heart transplantation, we're using less than a fifth of, of, of those organs. And um, that's just to give you a flavor that the, the pool of people who can get an organ is small. There's problems with the organs, uh, the pipeline to get the organs in the first place. And so Imran did incredibly well to get an organ. And it, not much has been changing. This is old data from when I was a registrar in Birmingham, which is a, transplant, a big transplant unit. But it's still about 250 to 300 transplants per year. That's not growing. So the thing is, we've got to get really good at picking the horses to back. Who are you going to give the heart to? And so there's a, a waiting list on that side. And there's post-op care and survival on this side. And we do our best to predict who's going to survive on the waiting list, because it might be up to a year or 18 months on the waiting list. Um, and we want to back the people who are going to survive as long as they can. And there's various factors at patient level, clinical factors, system level at each stage. And we have various risk scores that are um, either developed and derived from uh, US databases mostly, but also some European ones as well that are generally used in all of the research. But they use quite a few small number of features. They don't personalise those risk factors to the individual and they're not very good. So this is some work that we did um, with some colleagues at the Alan Turing Institute uh, to to look at how we could do better using machine learning, whether we could, um, to, to predict um, pe how people do after heart transplantation. Do we have data like that in the UK? The answer is, with that number of transplants per year, over the last 10 years of registries, it's not a big data set, and it's not well curated. So you're lucky if you can get um, three or 4,000 um, people in that data set. So we looked at the US, where there's publicly available data, you just send an email and get access to the data. It's wonderful. And that's whatever organ transplantation that you want to look at. So this is called UNOS, open access. We looked at those, um, those uh, between those dates. And you know, so there were 60,000 patients who had transplants. There were 36,000 people who were on the waiting list. And this, this amount of people who were, who were um, followed. So those scores that I listed, um, really just, just focus on the bold. These are all the risk scores that I listed at the top, those top three and these bottom three. And the numbers never get much above 0.6 for pre-transplant survival. And when you get to post-transplant survival, you're in tossing a coin territory. 
you're at the 0.5.6 area under the curve for these scores predicting um, survival, even at three months. And I'm trying to see whether this person can live for 10 years. So what is machine learning? I'm, I'm sure you all know this. It's a branch of artificial intelligence. Um, and in the cardiology literature, there's been a ballooning of um, the use of the term artificial intelligence. And it's, you know, the, there's lots of people joking about whether the intelligence of the people writing about it is actually artificial or not. Um, so, so it does borrow from um, models of, um, of statistics. There's, there's various um, algorithms that are off the shelf. And there's also people who are trying to marry up different algorithms to see if they do better. But Mihaela van der Schaar, who's our um, um, computer scientist in this, in this piece of work, um, what she was trying to do was to cluster features together um, and personalise the risk prediction in a way that traditional risk scores look at population characteristics to see whether the regression could be done in clusters of individual characteristics to try and personalise the risk prediction. She calls this model trees of predictors. So in your kind of EBM format, this was my PICO. We're looking at the UNOS database. We're looking at this new algorithm. Does it do better than off-the-shelf machine learning tools and regression at predicting survival after heart transplantation? Those scores that I showed you earlier, they all have a few component features. One of them has seven things there, 13, 14, and they range from ejection fraction, which I mentioned earlier, to things like age or blood pressure. And there's this idea that permeates the machine learning literature that bigger is better, that more is better, the more features that you have is better. So we used everything that we could in this UNOS database, 50 features, and I won't go into it because my computer science colleague here knows much more about this. But um, in short, the algorithm breaks down on the basis of various features at each level of this tree and sees whether with a limited number of features at each level you can predict rather than using the same algorithm, the same risk prediction tool in everybody. And what we found was that in the red box there, all of the numbers got better. The ones post-transplant -trans uh, survival, less so. They're still less than 0.7. But at the top, particularly in the short term, they were good. But at 10 years, you're in the kind of 0.76 tetri. But not that much better than existing machine learning, but significantly better, if, for what it's worth. But definitely better than existing risk-reports. So we improved risk survival. This got a bit of um, coverage, a bit of, a bit of press. And because of this idea of personalizing risk prediction, it was precision medicine with risk prediction. And it, and it also shows that you can improve risk prediction over various time horizons. But it's very far from perfect. We need to do things prospectively. That's looking in the rear view mirror at the moment. We need to do a forward-looking study with, with real patients going forward. And we need to validate it in different populations, possibly in the trial setting, and check whether patients and clinicians um, actually want to use this. So that's something that we're doing at the moment. We've got an online um, 
tool that transplant cardiologists can, can use with their patients. And we're gathering data on that. So that was the first problem, risk prediction at the end stage of heart failure. This is Richard, the next patient. 61 years old. He had a heart attack eight years ago and has had heart failure since. His ejection fraction is this, which is kind of moderately bad. And he is breathless going up two flights of stairs. He's very avidly looking up stuff on the internet. He's one of those people who's bringing sheets of paper to the consultations. And this um, risk calculator that said it used machine learning says he's got less than 20% chance of surviving the next 10 years. So his, his question is, will he see his grandson graduate? Which is um, 15 years. Now, I'm, um, you know, I don't know anything about his grandson's academic ability, but I'm just interested in his longevity. Um, so is machine learning any good in heart failure? Shaved off the top of the title there. So this is a, a large study from Sweden. So the Scandinavians curate and analyse data better than us, you know, and, and they do it for the whole the whole of the country. Uh, and in Sweden, they looked at nearly 50,000 heart failure patients, and they were looking at whether you could predict mortality. Um, using traditional methods and using machine learning. And in short, what we're taught at medical school and in cardiology training, this thing, ejection fraction, how well your heart pumps, that is the best indicator of whether you're going to survive or how long you're going to survive. In actual fact, that was really tossing a coin. That wasn't very good at all at predicting in um, a national data set in Sweden. But then, you know, using, using um, over 40 variables and machine learning, they managed to increase the C statistic. But this was, again, a retrospective study. There's lots going on in the literature about machine learning. I'm only going to tell you about in the cardiovascular space, but these are three diseases. Heart failure, acute coronary syndromes, atrial fibrillation, common. And they often overlap. And we're constantly thinking that we can do better at the definition, better at the diagnosis, and therefore better at the prevention. And so machine learning is, has been used a lot. There's lots of papers being written about it, but nothing is being used in actual clinical practice. So we did a systematic review. because the, the problem here is I don't know to tell this patient how good is this machine learning algorithm um, or how good is the literature about machine learning for risk prediction. So we, we've done this. We've looked in the last 18 years or so, um, and we've looked at any study that's looking at risk prediction, machine learning, clustering. And we've also done a scoping review of non-cardiovascular disease to see where heart disease is compared to other diseases. We've, after filtering through, we found about 70 articles. So um, I should give credit to Nick, Nick Cheng, who's a postdoc in data science in my group, who's, who's been doing most of this work. Um, clustering, for, for those of you who may not know, is looking at whether the data actually clusters. 
whether if you if you took 50,000 heart failure patients, do they naturally settle into different clusters? And there are 33 papers um, that we found that are looking at clustering. They're all the mean is about 2,000 patients. Some are very small. The largest was that uh, Swedish study that I just showed you. Um, most of them are in heart failure, some in the other diseases. Most of them are single diseases, and almost two-thirds of them are in North America. And uh, less than 1,000 individuals. That, and people talk about machine learning using lots and lots of variables, but actually it's about 26 at the moment in the literature. There's a variety of methods used. But only, but, but only three or four are commonly used. Most do not use several methods like we use. They use just one favorite machine learning methods. And clustering is uniformly positive. Nobody's ever written a paper that says, we didn't find any clusters. They say, we found two clusters, and we found four clusters, and we found three clusters. So it's always positive, And they don't always validate their findings. In the risk prediction literature, so this is machine learning to improve the, the heart transplantation risk prediction, for example. There are uh, fewer studies. Um, there's some which are very small. Again, mostly North America. People are using many more covariates, over 100. They're using more sophisticated machine learning approaches, maybe. But again, all of them are showing that machine learning improves risk prediction. So, what can we say? We've got a focus on North America. We've got some very small studies. We've also got a lack of validation. And we've got a probable publication bias. And in our scoping review, it looks like whether you're looking at clustering in rheumatoid or clustering in chronic lung disease, the same problems are happening in their literature as well. My third patient, Francesca, 67. She has had hypertension for donkey's years. She has recently been picked up with diabetes. She has a friend who has recently got breathless and has been diagnosed with heart failure. What's my chance of having heart failure is her question, because she's had hypertension for ages, 15 years plus, and she's, she's diabetic, and she's 67. So primary prevention in heart failure is really difficult. There's no consensus guideline about primary prevention in heart failure. Uh, there's a primary prevention of cardiovascular disease, which mentions a couple of lines in, uh, about heart failure. And other than um, stopping smoking and a couple of drugs and treating blood pressure better, we haven't made much advance in primary prevention at stopping it happening in the first place. So our um, European Society of Cardiology has a table drawn by a group, a group of august, predominantly men at the ESC who sit around the table and decide that these are the 89 factors that are etiologically associated with heart failure. So they um, have level one, which is the yellow diseased myocardium, abnormal loading conditions, level two, level three, level four. And so you've got everything there, as I said earlier, from hypertension to cobalt, from pregnancy to 
um, amyloidosis. So lots of different causes there, 89 in all. So what we thought is there's been no study that's ever looked at all of these causes in a systematic way. People have said, let's look at heart failure caused by MI or not, or let's look at blood pressure related heart failure or not, but they've never looked at all of these together and neither will they be able to. So one of the things that can be done is in the electronic health records, you might be able to look at the incident heart failure patients, we've got 170,000 of them in um, CPRD, uh, which is a, a primary care database that I'm sure most of you have seen. It's linked between primary and secondary care and whether we can look at all of these risk factors. So we, we coded each one of those 89 um, causes or um, etiologic factors in the electronic health record and we did that in the 170,000 patients. We, as I say, we were using CPRD linked with HES data, hospital episode statistics, so read codes from the GP, ICD codes in the hospital statistics and um, you know, that's the number of codes. So this is a, it's a reasonable piece of work to just get to the stage where, where you can make these codes mean something. And then at each of those levels, level one, level two, as I said, we've looked at when somebody in the last five years before their heart failure had a code that matched. And so, for example, the commonest cause is disease myocardium. Ischemic heart disease is probably the, the, the commonest reason for having heart failure or having an association with heart failure. And at each of those levels, we've looked. It's hard to do this in traditional data sets without bigger data or bigger data about causes. Sorry. And what you do is you end up in a situation where you can present all of the, the causes ever in the, in, in, in the life history of heart, heart failure and see, for example, that you've got hypertension here, you've got coronary disease, obesity, cancer, diabetes. So it's mostly the things that we think, but there's also some rarer things that we don't, you know, this is, this is pacemaker related issues that are related to heart failure. And then we can look at whether, and these are age and sex adjusted, we can look at whether the causal factor is related to the prognosis. This is at five years, but you can look at 10 years. And people who, don't, who have heart failure but don't have any recording of any of those risk factors have much better survival. Unsurprising, you might say. But you can, you can look as a clinician at who, who, who might I be focusing on? How am I going to tell this lady what is her risk of developing heart failure? Maybe this might push us further along. The problem is, as I told you, we've got no or relatively few treatments for primary prevention of heart failure. What we've got data for is treating heart attacks, treating blood pressure, and also there's a group of drugs that have just come off the pipeline called SDLT2 inhibitors, which are for treating diabetes, which also prevent heart failure to some extent. So if you look at the proportion of people who have those three conditions, it's actually quite large among people who have 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 risk factors out of those 89 for heart failure. There's potentially 
a, a big chunk of people, even where we've got three treatable conditions who might be treatable or better treated. So we think this is the first study um, that's looked across all um, causal factors of heart failure in a population-based nature. Um, the commonest risk factors are these, but they're mostly things that we expected. Add in cancer, add in obesity, add in anemia. And at individual and population level, we probably should be looking at um, better treatment of hypertension, ischemic heart disease and diabetes. Now, it would be wrong of me to come to Oxford and not talk about evidence-based medicine and to talk about Dave Sackett's um, famous definition. Um, and always go back to this. Patient values, relevant scientific evidence, clinical judgment. And I also always remember this story of the blind man and the elephant, which you're all well aware of. But um, it, you know, there's lots of countries that claim it. My ancestors in India say that it comes from there. People in China say it comes from there. Um, but the story is the same. The, the three blind men are introduced to different parts of the elephant's anatomy and have different ideas about what they're actually discovering here. And the truth is, we're still in evidence-based medicine, not at a place where people are looking at where those circles are overlapping. Most people are neglecting the patient values and, and preferences bit. There's you know, probably much more of this going on. Um, and that's, that's definitely, in my experience of evidence-based practice, been, been an issue. And that's why you know, these, these are patient-based scenarios which are genuine from my, from my practice, and most of the literature is not designed to answer their questions. <coughs> Excuse me. This is a, a newfangled um, lexicon from the big data era, learning health systems. It's always three things. This is science, evidence, and care. And this came from the Institute of Medicine report in the US in 2006, where the big emphasis was on wastage, that most of the research doesn't reach guidelines and evidence. Most of the evidence doesn't get read by clinicians like me, doesn't get applied by health systems. And so the care is suboptimal, and it leads to poor outcomes and probably patient safety issues and maybe death. So if you can have data circulating around, then the system as a whole can learn. And science has to be informed by data coming back from the clinical space. So this is a, a model that's you know, not replacing at all evidence-based healthcare, but it's just thinking about it in, or phrasing it in a slightly different way. Maybe it's exactly the same. But note again, patients are in the middle. But again, there's a problem in the data science space, which is where I am at the moment, where we're looking at different parts of the elephant at the moment. You've got the informatics people who are pushing the science and what we do with electronic health records and the, the latest newfangled machine learning methods. You've got people who are interested in doing guidelines. And you've got a different agenda of how we use it in the healthcare setting and actually provide care. And then the bigger issue still that I face is that 
there are di these three different paradigms, these three different frameworks, which often people seem to think are competing. So, you know, are you an evidence-based person or are you an informatics person? Are you a quality improvement person or are you an evidence-based person? Are you a big data person or are you bonkers? You know, you, you know it's, at the end of the day, it should be about, are we trying to do this to make things better for patients? Full stop. And add into that big data, machine learning, AI, precision medicine, so on. This is one that, again, one of my colleagues, Rob Aldridge, in, in, my, in my department, um, is writing a lot about that public health is also you know, not to be left behind in the big data area. It's not just the people who are looking at genes and proteomes. It's also the public health people are going to marry with the computer scientists and the epidemiologists, biostatistics, to make sure we use the data better across disciplines to understand and prevent disease. To, to do that at the public level, at the population level. And the difference that I want to put to you now is that we are moving to an era where you know, having one person or a set of investigators having a cohort of people with heart failure, that's going to get defunct quite soon. We should be using our routine data much better, whether it's at the individual level or the um, patient level. In general practice, we've been far ahead in this country. Um, hospitals are slowly catching up but partly where we've gone wrong is that elephant issue that even in the hospitals we haven't been thinking about how to make the data actually improve things for patients but people are thinking about this much more at scale um, and, and doing it across clinical and research spheres but the issue is that the data is still the problem so the people who are likely to use new technologies or have new technologies and new computer science and machine learning or whatever used upon them are the people who are socioeconomically better off. They're the people in higher income countries. There's a data divide. Does everybody know this slide? So this is genomic studies to date. Well, 2016. It's not that much better today. In 2019. In 2009, 4% of the people in genomic studies worldwide were non-European. 19% are non-European in 2016. Four-fifths of the population of the world is non-European. So, should I be excited about what precision medicine is going to do for people when the data doesn't re represent the population. There's a data divide. Who owns the data? Is it publicly owned? Is it commercially owned? What's the quality of the data? And what are the standards in its collection and its use? So, so before you get to making heart failure treatment better for patients, there's this backdrop where we need to, you know, before we say the machine learning is going to tell you more about heart failure. It's the same problem as standard statistics in epidemiology. 
is is the is the population representative of the patient sitting in front of you? Is there external validity of the research? So I'm coming towards the end. There's no framework, there's no data, there's no digital tech that is bigger than the patient. That's my learning of the last 15 years. And um, even now people are evangelical about different parts of the elephant. But we must remember the patient. And that's where the exciting opportunities are in big data and heart failure. There are gaps I've hopefully shown you in both machine learning and in, in my own work in the, in the way we're looking at causes and risk prediction. We need to be scientific and we need to talk to each other. I'll leave you with a quote from uh, Yuval Harari. Some of you may have read uh, from his, his book, Homo Deus. And he, he's um, big on data science, actually. He's, he's saying that um, you know, this, this century, the last train ever to leave the station called Homo sapiens is leaving. Those who miss the train will never get a second chance. In order to get a seat on it, you need to understand 21st century technology, and in particular, the powers of biotechnology and computer algorithms. And he does actually talk about um, how there's this data divide and how everybody needs to understand how the algorithms and the, the science that's being pushed, need, we need to all make sure that, that there is legis legitimacy in that, in that data. Um, so I, I commend that book to you if you haven't read it. Um, and I will stop there. Thank you.